Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cast It Into the Fire podcast. I'm Sarah. And I'm Sherry. We're back to Redwall. We're on part three, or as they call it, book three, The Warrior. We're going to be covering chapters one through five today. And it is the shortest section of the book, even... um, Yeah, in two more Redwall episodes, this book will be over. Yeah. And so we're on chapter one... And it's got a nice uh, illustration of a wasp, a yellow jacket. Um, I don't know what the British species are. It's hornet. Ah. Because. Because of, we'll get hear. to that. You will hear. All right. So, Clooney's army has been trying to invade through the night. Battering ram keeps pounding on the door. And uh, he was pleased by the battering ram. He wasn't so pleased with the progress of the tunneling. And he actually threatened the tunnelers that if they did not do better by morning, he would cave in the tunnel and bury the whole shirking crowd of them. With them inside, yes. Of course. And the tunnels were his plan that he actually was intending to be what conquered Redwall. Remember, the battering ram was a decoy to get them focused on their gates and not paying attention inside the grounds. Now, uh, Basil Stag here uh, assessed the gatehouse door, and he figured it had maybe half a day at the most of continuing battering in its current state. And remember, Basil Stag is basically the only true military one among them. Right. Oh, Constance comes close, despite her lack of actually being in an actual military before this. Um. Now, regarding the battering ram, Clooney had ordered that they were, like, supposed to switch out the ram carriers every hour, though it wasn't fully uh, done that way. Uh, but, you know, this was a heavy, heavy thing, so he wanted full force behind the ram, and if you're worn out from it, you're not going to have full force. Yeah, imagine a bunch of rats carrying a whole tree, even if I'm not convinced the size scale truly makes them rat-sized, it's a little confusing. Right. And well, the defenders on the wall, you know, Basil and Ambrose and Winifred, they realize they've got to stop the battering ram somehow. And they've lost too many creatures. You know, go- going after the ram rats from the battlements. So they need something to stop it and they figure it it would take only a small thing to do so if they could just think what it was. And that's when Jess Squirrel and Silent Sam maneuver a barrel up onto the ramparts. Now, Silent Sam knew what was in there. Actually, they both oh, did. Oh, yeah, they did. And this this barrel actually had, you know, 
something covering it, uh, and it was making a strange sound from inside. It, yeah, the, it was covered with gauze. Um, so, anyhow, what they had done is they had found a hornet's nest, and they had somehow gotten it into the barrel, and so the nest, the barrel was filled with very angry hornets. I'm trying to think how they did it. Uh, maybe like one. put the barrel below the nest and tr like cut the branch that it was. Don't try this at home, anybody. Yeah. <laughs> Hornets, or as I might call them, habanero sky raisins. Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to flies, which are just sky raisins. And besides the barrel of hornets, they have two pails of vegetable oil that. The plan is first they dump the hornet barrel onto the ram so everyone gets stung. And then while the rats are hiding from the bee the hornets, they would dump the oil onto the, bear the the ram to make it too slippery for them to grab onto to use. Right. And so they uh, balance the hornet barrel on the edge and they give Sam Squirrel the honor of kicking it off and... And the rats did begin to disperse as they were being stung. Um, they went flying in different directions, the, the hornets and the, the rats. Um, some ran to the tunneling that was occurring. Some ran to the ditch. Uh, Even some of the tunnelers got stung a bit. That's right. And Clooney got stung. Everybody pretty much got stung. But those who were unable to escape were seven rats, two ferrets, and a stoat who lay dead in the ditch from their stings. Which I think is another uh, bit of a size scale thing. These are much smaller animals than like a person, so... Mm -hmm. The stings are going to be a lot more venom. Now, Cheese Thief reported to Clooney that, indeed, the ram that had the two uh, buckets of vegetable oil dumped on them, that the ram was now too slippery, and though they had tried to pick it up, one bear had actually broken both legs when they lost control of it while trying to pick it up. So, that was the end of uh, um, the battering ram at this point. Clooney has his army get out into the meadow and regroup there, and he sends someone scouting to look for dock leaves for the stings. Um, dock leaves, I can't vouch for how effective they really are or not. Um... I'm not exactly sure the right way to use them, but they have been known as a plant with healing properties for a long time in real life, mm -hmm. even though they're not so much in use now. I think they would at least have to probably bruise the leaves or something to get the juices out of it. 
Yeah, a lot of Redwall characters use dock leaves for this sort of injuries and whatnot. Um, um, one or two got stung at the of the Abbey creatures because you know the hornets are going to go where they want after their. And they actually had already made up something um, that you know treated stings. I think much better than the dock leaves, uh, just for the odd occasion that somebody would get stung while at the abbey. But, you know, the army had regrouped across the meadow, and uh, Jess Squirrel was lowered to inspect the gatehouse door. It had two long cracks and many deep dents, uh, and Constance decided that carpenters and smiths would be lowered uh, later on to uh, work on repairs. And Clooney could be seen in his tent across the meadow. And Constance was focused on that and just thinking, if only... He uh, weren't out of reach with our arrows. But if they could just get rid of Clooney somehow, the rest of the army would be leaderless and no longer a threat. And they, they could clearly see Clooney in the tent. Um... And then she got the idea of um, instead of using their regular bow and arrows, they would construct a crossbow and mount it on the ramparts. And not just an ordinary handheld sized crossbow, a big one like um, like those bolt throwers that if you've ever seen the live-action Hobbit movies, what they were uh, trying to use for the dragon, I think that's more what... Uh, yeah. Anyhow, um, she told her idea only to the beaver, who set to work on a ewe sapling, and... Uh, yeah, he actually gnawed it down with his teeth because he's a beaver. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend against putting any part of a yew plant in your mouth. It is very poisonous. But um, Anyhow, Constance set to work improvising a candle snuffer into a vicious-looking spear. Um, and So she was flattening it out and making a point on it. Yep. Anyhow, and a bow string out of climbing rope with beeswax to wax it. And um, when everything was ready, it was taken to the ramparts. And they wanted to wait till the Joseph Bell to toll mid-afternoon. And that way, they'd have their best view uh, of Clooney, you know, his shadow, whatever, in the tent. Um, and after they had lunch, uh, they took a nap and what what they didn't know was things were going to be happening during their nap. So back at the rats camp, Clooney decides that... a new idea. And...
Now, first off, yeah. Go ahead. He's going to put Cheese Thief in charge until he gets back from his idea. And his idea involved taking... He handpicked 30 rats and... They're going back to the upturned cart that they first arrived in in the ditch. Actually, first he takes them into the woods. Well, that way they won't be seen going there. Well, and what they're doing in the woods is they're building something. Yes, they're uh, actually building a, a siege tower that they're planning to put on the cart and use against the abbey. And... But, uh, anyhow, yes, Cheese Thief was put in charge, and he, you know, thinks of himself as, like, you know, second in command, even though he hadn't actually been given And he's lording it over the other creatures in the camp. And yeah, ordering, you know, critters around and such, and he ordered Darkclaw to get the ferrets to get more dock leaves. And he said, you know, he'd be in the tent. And in, in the tent is... Yeah, is Clooney's lunch is there. It's yeah. wood pigeon and cheese and barley wine. So he has himself a good lunch from Clooney's food. And and he sits in his chair. And then he decides he's going to try on Clooney's poison tail barb. And his cloak and even possibly the helmet. And I think you can see where this is going, maybe? Yeah, well, just then, the Joseph Bell uh, told. And Constance and woke up the beaver, and they can see in the tent, looks like Clooney is there all dressed up. And their giant bow works perfectly, and Cheese Thief didn't know what hit him. Yeah, his life was snuffed out just like that. And that's the end of chapter one. And on to chapter two. Remember that cliffhanger when uh, Matthias fell and landed directly in the cat's mouth? Yeah, that's where we open it with. Um, and, of course, Matthias screams within the marmalade cat's mouth. And the cat was just as surprised, and he's foot... <laughs> I spat him out onto the he spat the onto cat. the floor and he's covered with spit and he's sticky and dust and straw are sticking to him and Matthias um, plays dead in the hope the cat will leave him. And the cat's trying to get the nasty taste of mouse out of his mouth. And uh, finally the cat tells Matthias to get up. He knew he wasn't dead. I... Ugh, I simply cannot abide the taste of mouse. Filthy little vermin. One can never tell where they've been. And the cat has... Um, a bit of a... Upper class kind of voice to mm -hmm. uh, Matthias's opinion. And it... W and it would have been funny if it hadn't been so frightening and Matthias is, you know, playing dead and he slowly gets to his feet and look at each other and the cat's Matthias like, you got... didn't know what to say and the cat spoke again. 
Well, have you have nothing to say for yourself, Mouse? Where are your manners? Don't you think you should apologize for leaping into my mouth like that? And Matthias, you know, manages to stand again, and he's still shaky, and he, he bows. And he said, I beg your pardon, sir. It was purely accidental. I fell, you see. Please accept my humble apologies. I am Matthias of Redwall, and I sincerely hope I have not disturbed you in any way. Under those circumstances, I could not have made it this polite. <laughs> Anyhow, um, the cat sniffed distantly. Yes, at least you seem to have some sort of decent upbringing, Matthias of Redwall. I accept your apology. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Squire Julian Ginevere. Gingevere. Gingevere. And, you know, Matthias says, you know, pleased to meet you, Squire Julian. And the cat tells him, you can just call him Julian. The title is hereditary. He never wanted it. What's he squire of? Just broken down old farm and a stretch of river. Has no friends, no... No real friends, no trusty servants, and not even a mate. And he supposed that his that the Gingivere line will become extinct when he passes. No, oh, that's a lot to uh, dump right there. And Matthias is like, at least you live in peace. Uh. Anyhow, um. Julian asks Matthias, you know, what was the reason for his mission? And and Matthias explains that Julian is surprised and he's like, Captain Snow is an old maniac. He's forbidden him to use the barn. He's a dreadful bird. He eats everything that moves. He's got bad table manners. He regurgitates bone and fur. And so he's not allowed to use the barn, and so he lives in a hollow tree. That um, Julian had uh, had an argument with uh, Captain Snow, and so they basically weren't talking to each other, and that he didn't expect they ever would be talking to each other. But, uh... Anyhow, um... But it seems to be they had some kind of friendship before. They lived together before, but... In spite of Julian thinking mice are totally disgusting and... Captain Snow eating them and puking up fur balls of a mouse onto the... Right. Anyhow, um... Julian did say he would take him to where Captain Snow was, but he would not talk to the owls since they'd had a fight. And Matthias much to his surprise, rode on Julian's back. And Julian gave him a message to pass on to the shrews, you know, when he saw them next. 
that they were allowed to come to the barn for hay and stuff. They were, you know, more than welcome, but they were not to argue there. And he says that what he eats himself is herbs, grasses, and an occasional fish from the river, and that he gave up red meat years ago. Which, to me, says he must have uh, eaten some kind of little animals. Yeah. Years ago, though. Yes. And he doesn't want, you know, shrew noises from their quarreling, disturbing his meditations. So the shrews get to see him arriving on catback. And I'm picturing a cat going on all fours for this. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, um, so Matthias rode on Julian's back till they got to a small overgrown orchard and were about 20 paces from a stunted oak. Now, Julian had warned that Captain Snow was watching them and if he doesn't get eaten first to give him the message that he must admit he was wrong and apologize, only then can he, they resume their friendship and reside together in the barn. Which isn't exactly something that's likely to get Matthias into Captain Snow's good graces for him to be, besides what he's going to ask of Snow, be intermediary between him and the cat Yeah. over this friendship that ended on very bad terms. Yeah, that's not likely to make him less angry. But Matthias still does have the badge from Basil Stag. From Basil Stag, and he's been having it attached to his cloak. Well, he removes it from the cloak because, you know, now is the time to make sure that this badge is seen first, or I should say metal, is seen first. So that's what he does, and he's got it, you know, up in his, in his hand, you know, like over his head. So, anyhow, um, that's, he's, he's a screech. And, and now, Julian had already parted company, so, you know, it was just... Uh, Matthias, and uh, yeah, he he hears a screech, and anyhow, uh, Matthias is yelling out, truce, Basil Staghair sent me here, I claim a truce, and Captain Snow knocks him flat on his back. And he tore the metal from his grasp with his talons. And it says he had six dangerous talons in front and two at the back of his legs, which I believe is actually um, incorrect for that species. I believe that they have two in front, two in the back. See, now I'm wanting to look this up for snowy owl. I believe all owls have four toes to each 
and he has a sharp, heavily curved beak and eyes like tw colossal twin golden orbs with circular black centers. And Matthias is somehow continuing to duck and weave. Conscious that his life hung, hung by a thread. And then Captain Snow, flicking out a talon, uh, state your name and rank. Who gave you my medal? Snapped the owl in a flat, hard voice. Still moving quickly and panting for breath, the young mouse gasped. Matthias Mouse, warrior of Redwall Abbey. The medal belongs to my friend Basil Staghair. He sends his compliments, Captain Sir. Stand uh, fast, snapped the captain. And Matthias stood rigid and still and the owl's talons are actually starting to creep toward him as if they're got a life of their own it said and Matthias is moving backwards from them and Captain Snow is licking saliva from the edges of his beak that's a weird mental image that's not a thing most birds more like <laughs> I, I don't think most birds are anatomically capable of doing that and yeah. it's a weird well, it clearly wants to eat him, and he asked what the cat said to him, and was, did, it meant, did the cat mention him? Matthias gives the message from Julian to, you know, if he admits he was in the wrong and apologizes, he can come back and be friends and live in the barn. And the owl actually pounced then. Matthias still zigzagging away. He's like, oh, come back, stop, I want to talk to you. Matthias stood a safe distance away from the tree. Captain Snow shifted from one foot to the other, muttering huffily, me in the wrong? Never. I won't apologize to that cat. I refuse to. And... When the owl had finished arguing with himself, Matthias said, Captain Snow, sir, there's a question that I must ask you. And Captain Snow's like, you know, you can't stand down there shouting up at me. Why don't you come up to my lair or nest? <laughs> then we can chat together in comfort. And standing on tiptoe, Matthias could catch a glimpse of the nest, quote-unquote. And there was, like, the walls were covered with, lined with fur from all sorts of little animals. Shrews, mouse, bull, and even rat. You know, don't you think Matthias could just be like, hey, you know where you can get a lot of rats? Yeah, well, seriously. he does not say this. And this skulls and bones from creatures hung up and Matthias is just you know if you don't mind captain I prefer to stay where I am and the captain laughs at this and says he doesn't blame him and what's the question that he wants to ask and Matthias you know, boldly calls out you know where Matthias the giant adder is wants to know, you know, yeah, where it is. And where he can find him. And you know, the owl says, you know, 
He knows of everything that moves in his territory. And he knows of Asmodeus. And he knows where he calls home. And he says, why do you ask? And Matthias goes on to say that the adder had, has something that belongs to the abbey, an ancient sword. And the owl's like, oh, a sword. I remember the night he was coming through and he was carrying it. And he said, you'll never get that sword from Asmodeus. A puny little mouse like you. The adder has magic in his eyes that will freeze you like a statue. Huh? I wish mine could. <laughs> so he's hoping he had eyes that would freeze critters like a statue. And of course... You now I can see how that would be useful to him. Yeah, but... Or useful to snakes if they actually had that. <laughs> but Matthias felt his temper rising and he shouted angrily at the self-opinionated bird. I don't care if he's got magic eyes, poison teeth, coils of steel, or whatever. I mean to have that sword. I'll steal it from the snake or fight him for it. If I have two, all. And then he was uh, drowned out by the... No, the owl was laughing like crazy at yeah. this. and Nearly fell from his perch with merriment. And... Uh, Matthias says, I bet you couldn't fight Asmodeus. And the owl says he's never tried, and he doesn't relish the prospect, and that both he and the snake would probably both end up dead. Which... Okay. Realistic enough. I think an actual owl and an actual adder, the owl definitely has the upper yeah. um, talon there, but... With this really big one, it's then, a little... Then Matthias, mocking him, said, That's because you're afraid. Look, I'll bet I'll fight Asmodeus and win, too. And the owl's like, Bet you won't. Bet I will. Bet you anything you won't. Matthias pointed at the medal in Captain Snow's talons. Bet you that medal that I will. The captain flung the medal backwards into his nest. Done. Hold on, Owl, Matthias shouted. What are you putting up for as a wager? That medal is not yours. You gave it to Basil Staghair. Spreading his wings to their incredible length, Snow screeched, I'll bet anything, whatever you say, Mouse. And Matthias says that he doesn't want anything of the Owls, but if he can guarantee to return the medal and make some promises, and the Owl is like, Sure, name your promises. And Matthias says terms are, he must promise on oath to never eat another mouse or shrew of any type. And the owls chortled agreed. In fact, I'll go even fur further. I'll promise you that if you defeat the snake, I'll admit I was wrong to that stuffy old cat. I'll even apologize to him on the bended knees. So there. Another thing I'm picturing awkwardly with an owl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and Matthias wants... Yes. Uh, Go ahead. Matthias wants the owl's word as captain, and the owl swears by his captaincy and by his illustrious ancestors, Nectia and Glacier, that he, Captain Snow, would return the medal and cleave to his oath 
if he should win against Asmodeus. And he keeps laughing, says it's the easiest bet he's ever made. And Matthias says, maybe and it, it is to you, but it isn't to me. Now tell me where to find the snake. And the owl says to go looking in the old sandstone quarry. He'll have to cross the river. There are caves and passages in the quarry. He'll explore them, and he won't find Asmodeus until he is least expecting him. And it'll be too late. He'll be deader than an icicle in hell. Goodbye, mouse. Anyhow, Matthias backs, turns his back on the snowy owl and strode off with a string of taunts ringing in his ears. And nice to have the metal back. Um, you should have let, should have let him, uh, Matthias should have let the owl eat him. It would save him a journey to the quarry. Um, give the, the hare his best wishes, but you can't do that because he'll be snug inside the snake. And Matthias ignores this. He goes back to the shrews. And uh, they want to hear about what happened and why he didn't get eaten and um, what the owl had to say about the snake. I'm still saying that by regular nature logic, that is worse than an adder. Mm -hmm. um, he tells about his talk with Captain Snow. He um, also says he was led to him by Squire Julian Gingerveer. Does they know about that name at all? And the the shrews are acting awkward and. Matthias is not happy that the shrews told him to go into the barn without any word of warning that there was a cat in there. And they said they forgot. Oh, they forgot. It's a big thing to forget. And, and Matthias forgave them this once. And they say, we are shrews not only by name but also by nature. We argue, we quarrel, we bicker and fight and we lose sight of the important issues and that's just their way but, uh, accept, accept their apologies yeah Matthias retrieves the stone before forgiving them because they still got that rule he explains about where the instructions on how to find the snake and about the promise on oath which means if the shrews help him in getting rid of the snake, they've also gotten rid of the threat of the owl at the same time, too. And they also were given the message um, from Julian the cat that he is not going to hunt them and that they have permission to take, you know, what they need from the barn, but they have to do so quietly with no fighting or arguing... So, anyhow, then Matthias asks them to lead him to the quarry. And one of the shrews takes the stone and um, objects that their rules don't have you know, anything for going beyond shrew territory, and the quarry is not in shrew territory. 
And Slogalog actually whacks that shrew, calls him a coward and an ungrateful little fool. And how can he say that when Matthias is trying to do this for them? And... And Jossum, yeah, basically yeah. a riot broke out among the shrews. Kicking, punching, arguing, screaming, wrestling, shouting. And Matthias held up the stone and tried shouting above it all, but they they couldn't hear. And so he grabbed the nearest shrew and shouted at him, Listen, you, tell me which direction the river is in. And the shrew just points his paw northeast and wriggles out and joins the fight with the other shrews. And Matthias is done with dealing with them. He throws the rock off sort of in their direction and storms off into the woods without the shrews. And heading in the direction of the river. That's the end of chapter two. On to chapter three. The rats have found Chief Thief's body in the tent trust in Clooney's battle armor and with a gigantic arrow in him there's a and the tent isn't really much of a tent anymore. It's wreckage. It's wreckage. And there's a rather gruesome illustration at the front of the chapter that's, well, cheese thief with the arrow stuck in him. Yep. Anyhow, um, the Horde decided not to go anywhere near the gruesome scene. and So they don't potentially get blamed for whatever that's happened. That's right. Because not only is Cheese Thief dead, the tent is ruined, and Clooney's best battle armor is messed up, seeing as how Cheese Thief was wearing it when he got shot. Got shot. And Constance, um, back on the parapet, can tell something isn't quite right, and sure enough, she sees Clooney himself crossing the road and heading back toward the camp. And even though he's not wearing his outfit, she can tell that it's Clooney and she got the wrong rat. And this isn't something she can expect to pull off successfully a second time. Oh, I don't see why not. Well, if I would still use that. He's not going to go back into that tent. and No, but if you can aim through a tent, I think you'd be better to aim not through a tent. This is a more powerful weapon. Well, but anyhow. in whatever case, Constance abandons that plan. And they'd only made one arrow, arrow point, slash yeah. spear thing for it. And Clooney leaves his um, picked rats in the woods working on the thing they're making. Gets gets back to the camp, kicks open the tent, finds Cheese Thief in there, dead in his armor with an arrow, just like the others saw. He comes up with an idea to explain it all. Um, basically, to make it look like he had arranged for Cheese Thief to get bumped off for being too... a traitor. He wanted... He wanted to be in command. And... And look at the proof he's wearing Clooney's armor. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and the other rats, you know, they're, they didn't like cheese thief ordering them around, so they agreed to that explanation easily enough. Anyhow, um, so enough of cheese thief, and he, you know, the, the tunnelers report progress to uh, Clooney, and the duck leaves gatherers uh, return and say they found a family of dormice, which they tied up, and there was about 20 in all. And they say that nice big fat ones they are, chief, which to me seems an implication to think of eating the mice. Right. And Clooney's like, you haven't killed them yet, I hope. And Scumnose answers that no, he didn't. They're just uh, tied up in the ditch. And he can come and see them. There's about 20 of them. And Clooney says, good, he wants them kept alive. And uh, Clooney goes to address the Dormice. And he asks who their leader is. And a timid young Dormouse uh, raises his paw and, you know, his name is Plumen, if I'm saying that right. Plumpen. P- I'm sorry, Plumpen. Which, a um, little bit of a language bonus, is another word for Dormouse. Hmm. Anyhow, uh, Plumpen, you know, had said that they have hurt no one and they are against violence and ask for their freedom. And Clooney ordered silence. And he will teach them what violence means if they aren't silent. And he's um, cracking his tail to show the mice that he means it. And he's just, stop cringing. You're my prisoners. I'll do what I want with you. Don't worry. I won't kill you yet. I got useful things in mind. Plumpin, you tell your tribe they won't be harmed if you do what I say, and you're gonna stay here under guard. He gets Scumnose and Mangefur to guard them, and if any of the mice go missing, they're gonna go on the roasting spit. You know, and then Clooney sits under the awning, which was made from his tattered tent, while the armorer repaired his war gear. And he was thinking, now he's got three possible keys to getting into the abbey. One being the tunnel. Two being the rats in the woods attending to his yet unknown uh, second scheme. And three, the dormice. Um, so, meanwhile, back at the abbey, Jess Squirrel thinks Clooney is up to something more. And Formal thinks when the tunnelers surface, it'll likely be the southwest corner because they've been listening to, um, you know, possible sounds or possible like a, like a hollowy sound in the ground, something like that. Um, and also, uh, they were wondering, you know, what has happened with Matthias? Because, you know, he had slipped out and nobody knew what had happened with him. 
Um, and it wasn't like him to miss a battle. Now, before I move on, I'm going to show you what a Dormouse looks like. So, for anybody oh, who doesn't you. know what a Dormouse looks like, it looks almost like a regular mouse, but it's got almost a hamsterish look. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of a, a thicker, fuzzier tail than a regular mouse would have. Not quite to the level of squirrel, but mm-hmm. like more that way. It's really cute. Yeah. It's definitely cute. Anyhow, um, let's see. Abbot Mortimer had heard the concerns about Matthias as he was on his rounds with food. He said to give Matthias the benefit of the doubt and trust his judgment. That he's sure wherever that young mouse is, He'll be concerned with the survival of Redwall in one way or another. And he has a feeling that Matthias will be the salvation of them all. And Jess picks up her bow and arrow, says that she, they better make sure Matthias has a home to come back to, on with the war. Mm-hmm. And um, takes out a rat with uh, her arrow. A stoat. Oh, stoat, you're right. Yeah. Preacher fell transfixed, one stoat less to carry out Clooney's commands. So on to, uh, yeah, chapter four. Chapter four. Matthias makes a little makeshift camp for himself, eats a little food. And, I mean, it's, they say, frugal, so he doesn't have much. And he wraps himself in his habit against the breeze, which is cold, and goes to sleep, thinking angrily about what the shrews are like. Anyhow, sometime before Donnie wakes, well, not wakes exactly, but is aware of movement. And he feels that his feet are warm, which they wouldn't be with the cold breeze. And there's sound nearby. And he feels that there's a blanket over him. And he didn't have a blanket before. Anyhow, the guerrilla union of shrews in Mossflower had returned. And they'd set up a camp around him and lit fires and uh, and that shows how oblivious Messiah was that a whole troop of shrews encamped around him and set fires and cooked breakfast while... Well, he was tired. Imagine, you know, all the journeying he'd done that far and all the experiences and you know... He was tired, but you would think he would sleep a little more edgily out in the open, knowing there's predators around, uncomfortable ground, all that. So they have a toasted wheat cake for him and a bowl of herb tea. That sounds nice. He ate and drank in silence while Logalog folded the blanket and packed it away. And Logalog tries to explain to him that they're shrews and they have their union and they run their lives along democratic lines, don't think of them too harshly. And the shrew that spoke out against accompanying them was, you know, speaking their actual law on this. And he wasn't right to hit hit, hit the shrew because of it. And the shrew that upheld the argument for the one that got hit was right to do so 
And Matthias is like, I don't want to deal with your rules. I've got to do this thing. I don't have time to waste with this. And Logalog says, all of us are with you, Matthias. Tooth, claw, and nail. Lead on, on bold warrior. Yep. So Matthias is relieved and he laughs and says, let's get started. We've got an adder to fight, a sword to win. Anyhow, they're um, walking along. Um, they were reaching hawthorn hedges, spanning dried out ditches through several fields. Um, and they, oh, a halt was called at lunchtime on the banks of a slow, broad river. And they sat there uh, with Matthias sitting next to Goysum, or Gauss, Gaussum? I pronounce it Gaussum, but I'm Gaussum. not sure what. Anyhow, um, having their midday meal, and it would be the last cooked food they would get. Uh, because once they got to the other side of the river, there would be no fires, no noise, and... But Matthias is like, how are we supposed to cross this lot? And Gelson just walks to the river's edge and calls out, Lug, 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 loud. And that's, that's because Logalog, his father and his father's father before him were all called Logalog, and they were all fairy shrews on the river. But also, she's just made noise while they're trying to... Not just noise, she was shouting it instead of just, you know. So, anyhow, that did bring Logalog's attention, who arrived on a floating, uh, large floating tree trunk, but uh, Logalog called Gaussum Puddle-Headed Shrew. Oh, puddin-headed. I put. I would say puddin-headed. True. Same meaning, I'm sure. Uh, do you have to broadcast the fact that we're here? And why don't you show Matthias all the snake tracks in the mud? Yeah. And anyhow, it said Asmodeus had passed through here not four hours ago, and he's probably gone hunting in Mossflower Woods. And he might come back this way before the day is through. Interestingly, at the time these books were written, the scientific consensus on snakes were that they are deaf. Mm-hmm. It, it's not actually true according to more recent science, but when this was written... Well, they, they have an inner ear, I believe. They have an inner ear which can actually pick up sound, but at the time this was written, um, scientists thought the snakes could only feel vibration. But, will a shout create a vibration? A little high-pitched show voice. Mm. That would require more... Me being that nitpicking reptile enthusiast again. (laughs) Anyhow, so log-a-log's like... You know, we, we've got to get going because, you know, you've likely caught the attention of anything that, you know, is nearby with that shouting. 
Now they get onto their tree trunk ferry. And several shrews actually take out fishing lines and fish and catch quite a few fish while they are crossing the river. So wish I could find a fishing spot that good. I know. <laughs> the shrews disembarked and Matthias helped Logalog to conceal the ferry in some bulrushes. And um, Matthias thought... Maybe we could all hide somewhere. That way we might see Asmodeus return and track him to his lair. But the one of the sh- the shrew was concerned that with that many shrews there, Asmodeus would be able to smell shrew and know they were there, which is an actual realistic risk, so... Right. And, um, but they also felt that going to the quarry ahead of Asmodeus they would be very exposed there. They wouldn't know where Asmodeus's uh, entrance to its den was so they were at risk going there. So it was better to stay and hide but keep an eye out. And Matthias and the shrew spread out over a half a mile of uh, river bank, uh, you know, but in hiding in the bulrushes and such, um, and they waited all afternoon and into where it was starting to get dark. And a shrew came up through the grass to Matthias and tapped him on the shoulder, Matthias asked, what's wrong, and they see the snake, and the shrew says that he doesn't know, but they better come and see. He better come and see, and he will go and get Logalog. So Matthias thinks something must be wrong, and he goes running to the spot where Gaussim is, and she is just frozen in fright, with her teeth chattering and her eyes wide, and and she was trembling like a leaf, and. Um, Logalog races up. Matthias shouts to him. Gausum is in a state of shock, shock. And they need to get her into the water. So they get her into the water. They actually duck her head. And she comes up. And she's spluttering, but she's, you know, in her right mind again. And she says she saw Asmodeus and he was there. And he took Mingo, one of the other shrews, and gave him the magic eyes and bit him and dragged him off. And she flings herself down crying. And Logalog tells her not to lie there crying, that the snake probably left a fresh wet trail for them to follow. And they can, in fact, see the trail from the snake. The wet path and the dry grass gleamed in the dark. Now, somewhere actually not too far from where we live, there is a Mingo Creek, spelled the same way. Hmm. Yeah. I always think of that shrew when... Yeah. So they followed the trail with Matthias and Logalog in the lead, and it twisted and turned torturously over small bullocks... And even when it wasn't uh, 
It's still a wet trail. They can smell the scent of the snake. Yeah. The musty odor of death clung to the ground. And that's when Matthias points downward, calls for Logalog to look, and that's where the the big quarry is. It's not in use anymore. It's a big like, scooped out hole in the landscape. Roughly oval, and it looks kind of terraced of red sandstone. And they had, Matthias actually thought this is where the stones to make Redwall Abbey probably came from. Now, I see a lot of fantasy castles mm-hmm. seem to be made out of either it's described as sandstone or the it's still talked about in a way that sounds like they could be talking about sandstone, even if it's not named. Yeah. Do you think real castles ever or frequently use that? Or? Well, I think it's possible. I think it depends on what is available in the area where a castle's going to be built because, you know, like if it were I've a seen New examples Hampshire. in Game of Thrones and probably Narnia and... Like some... Like, if you were in New Hampshire, granite would probably be what you made your castle out of. Uh, so, you know, it's what it's what's available, I think, is the, the key. Because you're carting heavy rock, you don't want to cart it too far. And I'm sure even that quarry was a long distance to travel from the quarry to Redwall. Now, when I think of a quarry, I also think of the one in Massachusetts. I don't know what they were, probably granite. That one gets water in it, and it's known for having a lot of accidents from people trying to go in. Deaths. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Well, yes, it, it, I believe, was granite, but also uh, there's multiple quarries in Massachusetts. Um, anyhow. They decide it's dark, and they're going to wait till it's light and, you know, rest and eat. And they're gonna, and Matthias is gonna go down there as soon as it's light. And Logalog says he will go too. Matthias tries to and stop Gausum him. Also. Yeah, Gausum tells Matthias that he can't tell her not them not to come. That he's not a union member and they're not under his command. And so it's their decision to go, and they're going with him. Right. And they they reasoned that since. Um, Asmodeus had been on the hunt and had surely gotten a number of things even before um, it had gotten the shrew that it was likely going to stay in its den and sleep until the following night, um, you know, because it was well fed. Um, I can tell you, like, a pet snake on average eats once a week. Now in the wild they don't necessarily time it out like that. They get food, they eat what they can and then rest till they can get food again. Yeah. They're opportunistic, but Right. They, and, they don't necessarily eat every day. And if 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 times are sparse for food, then it might go a month without getting any food and be very hungry when And it, it'll be very food. hungry, but it will be alive and probably not have even lost too much in size from going that long. And 
as a person who's known quite a few snake keepers, uh, in the wintertime, snakes tend to eat a lot less and could easily go from being a once a week eater to a once a month eater or even skip two or three months um, if it's a real picky eater. But uh, Which I will say is more of a behavior associated with ball pythons and hog nose. I don't actually know by any experience what it's like for an adder because I've never had anything like that. Yeah, the only thing I know adder-wise is a friend in England who uh, sees adders in the wild. He does not keep snakes, but he sees adders in the wild um, connected with his job, which is working on taking care of certain lands in England. I think it's got something to do with like hedgerow habitat stuff and mm-hmm. out on the, the heath. And right. It's cool. Yeah. And if I was to ever go to England I'd like to see some of that. Right. And so as it starts to get more toward light um, they look at the sandstone, and it's actually described, it's not just red. It's pale sunlight, gold, banded through every shade of yellow fawn, umber, brown, down to the dusty red sandstone that must have been hewn out in distant ages for Redwall Abbey. You're the geology enthusiast. Got any... You know anything about sandstone? I don't really, but I can I can imagine it. I mean, my goodness, just going on a ride around here and you look where uh, rock has been cut away to make a highway or something, and to see the variations in the rock just in one little area is amazing. Uh, but it's generally in a place where you can't really stop and survey it bet more because it's at a highway um but yes i am a very novice uh rock hound you might say and uh, what matthias has to say to that is to think that all this peaceful beauty should hide such cold evil and so they start to descend the into it and single file and there's a lot of handholds and steps and the sandstone is not slippery so it's not too bad to climb down Gaussim is still worried that Asmodeus might try to hunt but you know you know the reasons why he probably won't he's he's eating Mingo he's probably asleep in there but as they're you know, looking together, yeah, they decide not not to separate but stay together. And Gaussum and Logalog drew their short rapiers, and uh, Matthias took out his dagger, and they start searching for a possible hole or a concealed entrance. And, and they they're looking under um, slabs and in bushes, and they still don't actually find a spot or find the tracks of the snake 
they eat some hardtack for lunch and a canteen of water. Now, we already kind of, if you've listened to any of our Hobbit episodes, we talked about something called cram. Um, really uninteresting, tasteless, hard bread that keeps well. Well, hardtack is the same thing, pretty much. It's, it's pretty much like eating a flour and water uh, dough that's basically been breaked yeah, into it's a good like thing a mice have those gnawing teeth, teeth. <sighs> um yeah it was not a cheerful meal and they were on a flat table shaped rock halfway up and anyhow um they they knew that they only had half a day left, and Matthias and Logalog gathered up their packs and weapons as Gaussum leaned on the side of a narrow slab and continued her summary. If we search around the top lip this afternoon... That only leaves us the he And the narrow slab that she had been leaning on had pivoted and she had fallen down into the underground part of Asmodeus Poison Teeth Lair. And that ends that chapter. Chapter 5. Another cliffhanger on that one. Clooney. Yeah, we're back to Clooney. Was awaiting the arrival of darkness and he had one of his three plans was going better earlier than he had expected. Kill Coney had been a lot of help. He he knew the principles of fulcrum and leverage, and he had helped rig up a block and tackle and a lever of a dead tree limb. And things weren't going quite right with riding the cart, but by accident, it actually did land upright on the road. Um, and they pushed it into the woods, and Kilconi oversaw lifting the siege tower onto the cart. And securing it to the cart. They muffled the wheels with sacking so it wouldn't make as much noise. And and the battle was still going on, even though, you know, this uh, siege tower was being dealt with. Um, and uh, John Churchmouse, Mr. Bull, and Friar Hugo, uh, you know, stayed down low, and they were collecting all the arrows, spears, and stones that the horde had hurled. And they are using a... Um, a strategy which will be used again and again in this book series where they have um, two or three ranks of um, fighters, in this case it's three, and the first rank will do their arrows. Yeah, first rank fire, drop back, kneel, and reload. And then the second rank, and then the third rank, and this is a commonly used strategy in these books, either with arrows or with sling stones. Anyhow, the 
the stuff that you know John Churchmount's Bull and Far Hugo had gathered, they reissued them to the defenders to use. And Constance and the Beaver had a stack of spears that had come over the wall and she and she and the beaver could throw them very hard and very accurately at the rats. It actually is frightening power and devastating aim. And several of the mice were felled by ferret archers that, um, I guess they had a good enough range on their bows. And they have Winifred and some otter slingers and Jess Squirrel, you know, fighting back against them. And while this is happening, the bell is ringing. And that basically signaled to Clooney to order the troops to bring forward the siege tower. And they took it to the relatively quiet southeast corner of the wall. And they're tugging it on, on ropes. And it's and not doing so well over grass, but they're managing. But Clooney actually lent a claw, and he pulled one of the lead ropes. And they got the tower to beside the wall, undetected, and secured it so it the part that it was on was not going to roll using rocks and mud and such to uh, or dirt to uh, secure it and meanwhile back in the abbey kitchens cornflour was setting out uh, the oatmeal and such for you know tomorrow's breakfast and, and the bread and she decided to make a vegetable soup because she knew that those on the wall at night loved to have some hot soup and uh, using her own recipe it was their favorite she gets some soup fresh bread loaves and goat cheese sounds good but we have questioned where these goats come from do they have goats at the abbey do they have goat friends somewhere that donate milk uh, yeah that's that's not clear but goat cheese <laughs> Anyhow, uh, Cornflower, with the help of Mrs. Bull and Mrs. Squirrel, put the vegetable soup, and it was scalding hot at this point, into three big earthenware jugs, and plus they had fresh loaves and the goat cheese, and she led the trio, carrying an oil lantern, you know, to see by, because it was night, Anyhow, she starts in the southeast corner to feed the moles, and she poured a soup into a mug for Brother Rufus, who had helped her get up, Um, and anyhow, she saw the tower and a rat. Just perched on a ramshackle wooden platform, and he's got a cutlass clenched between his teeth. And Cornflower just screamed and... Brother Rufus threw spun around, 
sending his scalding soup into the rat's eyes. And that rat screamed and fell down. And then Cornflower, without thinking about what she was doing... It was a panic move. ...threw the lantern, and it was, you know, fire and flammable oil, and it landed on the siege tower... And broke. ...which pretty much instantly went up in flames. And anyhow, so the tower's on fire, and there's over 30 rats up in the tower... And, of course, the rats are freaking out, too, and they're fighting each other and trampling. And and falling or jumping from it. And Clooney is going berserk and trying to get more rats to go up onto that tower. And Clooney was actually getting, you know, had his, like, cloak thing on fire, too. So, um, and, you know, it was a towering inferno at this point. And Dark Claw and Fangburn grab hold of Clooney's cloak, which is smoldering, and pull him backwards and tell him to get out of the way because it's starting to fall. And it's this tower on fire, teeters over and falls, a lot of flame, a lot of sparks. The hay wagon was pulled over onto its side, and it's all burning out. And Fangburn and Dark Cloud moved Clooney to the ditch. And Clooney was muttering dark words to himself, strange things that others could not comprehend. wonder and, what they were. Well, I don't know, but... Well, they already can comprehend what Clooney's like normally, so what... But they uh, think that Clooney has probably snapped. And that was the end, end of battling that night. Um, the fire dwindled down to embers... Um, an area of meadowland was burned black and scorched. Anyhow, um, in the in the morning, early morning, Cornflower's back in the kitchen working on the breakfast, and you know, thinking to herself, she was last night's heroine and this morning's cook. You know, the abbot said, you know, thank goodness the fire did not spread to the woods where all of moss flower might have gone up in flame. And the badger says that's true that no side uses fire as a weapon, not even Clooney, because fire spells certain death to both sides. And we must look on it as an accident, Father Abbot. Which it was. She didn't go there with that lantern with the intention of burning something down. It, she was carrying that lantern as lighting their way. And I'm not sure she wouldn't have thrown it on purpose even if she had time to think, but it's not like I really blame her under the... She didn't have time to think. She could have just as easily dropped it instead of throwing it. Um, it, it was, I think, done in panic. Now about that neither side using fire... That goes out the window by book four, um, where it is bad guys using fire, but they're definitely using fire on purpose. Anyhow, that concludes chapter five. Chapter five, and also this episode. This episode, and this is our second to the last episode for uh, the book Red Wall. I actually, I believe I've miscounted. It is... There are... Let's see. Oh, my. 
I miscounted. There is enough chapters left for two more episodes. Oh my goodness. Some of the chapters will be very short, but... Yeah, we got ten more to go, including, you know, okay. the end chapter. That, that That's my fault, because I somehow didn't look past chapter, I guess, nine and thinking, oh, that's it. But, uh, yes, yeah, so we have two more to complete this, but it shouldn't take long. Now we do plan on eventually getting through the whole series, but you know it'll take time. Yeah, it it definitely will take time. Plus, we're working on other, other yes, things if, as well. If you remember, we only did the prologue of Lord of the Rings, but we will be covering more of it. Anyhow, so uh, that concludes things, and. Uh, Please, you know, like, follow, review. Um, we'd like any feedback. Join the group, Cast Into the Fire podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If there's uh, something you'd like us to cover on a future episode. Um, we'd love to hear about that. Yep. So any suggestions, ideas, comments, feedback? Uh, We're open to covering almost any you know, fantasy series, uh, if if we have access to reading or watching it. Share us with your friends. Um, and it's been a pleasure talking with you, and we hope to see you next time. Thank you for listening to Cast It Into the Fire podcast, and have a good evening. Bye.